Hi, and welcome to Brain Observations, the podcast where we are curious about how the brain and the mind works, and how you can use this knowledge to improve your experience of life. I set out to find and talk to some of the most knowledgeable people out there, and at the end of each episode, I sum up what we learned from today's guest. Me, I'm Maria Sandell. I'm a clinical neurologist, and with this podcast, I hope to make scientific evidence on well-being and brain health more easily available. And my wish is to inspire you to learn more and find ways to improve your own life. I also want to mention that even though I am a medical doctor, this is a personal project and not affiliated with my hospital. The information in this podcast is meant to educate and inspire and should not be taken as medical advice. I advise you to discuss any potential changes to your lifestyle with your own personal doctor. And this is even more important if you're experiencing trouble with your mental health. Today's guest, Daniel Levy, is a professor of psychology at the Baruch Ivcher School of Psychology in Herzliya, Israel. He began his journey by studying philosophy and teaching literature, but gradually became more and more excited by psychology and neuroscience. So he changed course and got a PhD in cognitive psychology. His research is focused on the core processes and brain systems that underlie memory and learning. And he's also working on how to implement these insights into rehabilitation and training using methods such as neurofeedback, neurostimulation and sleep. Throughout all this work in neuroscience, his interest in philosophy never faltered and today we will be discussing a neuroscientific explanation of the concept of free will. Professor Levy developed a framework called Neural Holism about 20 years ago that still holds the same value today. We touch on subjects like, is there free will? To what extent can one be held responsible for one's actions? Can we be controlled by an external force? And what control do we hold over our own life experience? Welcome, Daniel, to this podcast. How are you doing today? Hanging in there, as they say. <laughs> awesome. Are you having good weather? It's actually quite hot here, as bad as global warming is getting for everybody. It's especially intense in the Middle East. So you are a neuroscientist, you work on learning and memory, but you also have an interest and some background in philosophy. How did you come to combine the two? Well, the, the reason that I decided to study first cognitive psychology and then cognitive neuroscience was because I realized that the questions in philosophy that were most important to me Um, understanding human consciousness, understanding um, the nature of the self, understanding human knowledge, that these questions, I, I, I was not feeling that I was getting answers that were sufficient for me from philosophical inquiry. And I started trying to look at those questions empirically. And at It's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. I think that's really fascinating because a combination of the two is not as common as you might want in, uh, in science. Yeah, well, the, there's a reason that uh, doctoral degrees in the sciences are doctorates in philosophy, PhDs, is because sort of being concerned with questions on the most encompassing conceptual level is really an act of philosophy, an act of trying to put the specific issues we're trying to explore in, in a more general context of ideas and concepts. So I, I hope that people aspire to that, you know, even if on a daily basis we're much more concerned with the nuts and bolts of... Yeah physiology or anatomy or whatever we're, we're investigating. So how have our knowledge about the brain and our thinking about the mind evolved through time? Yeah, so really I think the um, most important trend that we can observe in neuroscience and neurology maybe in general is a greater and greater understanding of maybe how humble we need to be in our understanding of human nature. As we get more and more 
biological insights into the brain, um, we begin to understand how mechanistic our, our experience really is or, or how ex mechanistic human nature really is. And of course, we're very, very far from anything approaching a complete mechanistic understanding of human nature. But we, we do need to sort of take into account more and more as we go along how the phenomena of, of human experience need to be understood on a biological level in order for us to understand them at all. So, so that's sort of the meta a level of, of what we can get in, in understanding human nature from, from biology and from neuroscience more specifically. Historically, there are sort of different schools of how we believe the mind and the brain to work. There is the representational computational theory and there is connectionism. And you're leaning a little bit more towards connectionism, as I understand. Could you explain a bit the difference between the two? Well, you know, connectionism is a term that was very popular maybe 20 years ago when especially people concerned with understanding the development of language were sort of contrasting the kind of parallel distributed processing that seems to be happening in the brain with the representational computational models of mind that were thinking more in terms of the kind of language-based propositions that talked about concepts and the computations that the mind can do on concepts. But I, I think today, most people who are concerned with understanding the mind in general are more open towards understanding the products of our processes of thinking as resulting from a very complex set of computations, the vast majority of which seem to occur below the level of consciousness. And, and that's the big difference, I think, between the way people used to think of 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 how thinking works and how we can think of how thinking works today. You know, knowing how much of mental life is unconscious has really informed a lot of the theorizing about how we make decisions or sort of experience our emotions or interact with other people. And that's the revolution, I think. Do you think the reason why so much is taking part in our subconscious mind is a form of an efficiency effect from the brain, that it is trying to continuously scan the environment, take in perceptions and automate it as much as possible. That's probably a, a big part of the story, that we can only be conscious of a relatively small amount of information at any given time. Whereas our, our brain is constantly processing not only the inputs from our senses and not only those to which we are paying attention, but also those to which we might not be focusing our attention at, you know, at any given time. And, and, and therefore, there's, there's a lot going on of which we can only be conscious you know, to a small extent. And that is so that we can use our consciousness to have a more clear focus on what is most important in front of us at the moment, or perceived as most important at least. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Okay. Today we're going to talk about free will, and describing free will and all the theories behind it would take an entire podcast in, in itself. But generally, when you started this sort of journey towards the article that you wrote, what were the concept of free will that you had heard most about, the discussions that is usually held around it? Well, I, I think all of us have an intuitive understanding of the kind of free will that we would like. We want to think that we're autonomous. We would like to think that we make our own decisions. We would like to think that anything that we choose to do, well, we could have chosen to do otherwise. I decided to have a peach yogurt for breakfast. Well, I could have decided to have cereal and milk instead, right? I could have. Why do you think this thought is so comforting to us? I think that none of us like to have a sense that we are automata, automatons, uh, that we're just sort of blindly 
stepping through life from one act to another without any volition, without any independence. There's also sort of the, the notion that we don't like to have our actions controlled by other people or other factors out there in the world. We want to be us. We want to be free. We want to be independent. We want to be fully thriving beings who make decisions about our own courses of action and that we're in control of what happens to us. And could it be because it makes us feel like an individual, that it it gives me a personality? If I am free to choose over myself and my experiences, my reality, then if I can make free choices, that means that I am an individual with a personality of my own. The notion of free will and the notion of self are inextricably interlinked. It's all about me. It's all about you. I mean, it's all about each and every one of us. We have a sense of our identity. We think we know who we are. It's not clear that we know who we are, but we think we know who we are. We think that we know what it means to be me. And a very, very essential part of what it means to be me is also the notion that I am a choosing being. It gives us a sense of control, control over our life in a way. And that's extremely important. Yeah. If we're not in control of our lives, we feel very threatened. And I think that all of us probably have a automatic response that when we do feel that someone or something else is controlling us, we'll do whatever we can to break free of that external control. And you can see this very clearly in my two-year-old. That's very healthy. It's very healthy and he is fully expressing his free will as often as he can. So in your article, you described uh, or you proposed a framework called neural holism. Could you describe that? The notion of neural holism is basically a way of saying that even though we don't have free will, it's okay. That's sort of the bottom line. And, and I'll tell you what led up to that. I'm, I mean, as a scientist and a philosopher, I don't see any real alternative to materialist determinism as a description of what happens in the world, not only to human beings, but also to human beings. And when we think about what people are and what people do, there seem to be maybe two basic factors that determine who we are. And again, this is the connection between free will and selfhood. So who we are begins with our genetic temperament, and that in turn is influenced by the complete set of experiences that we've had throughout our lives that change and shape us using a variety of memory systems, and that relates to the research I do about the brain basis of human memory. And um, when I talk about memory, um, I don't only mean the kind of experiences that we can consciously remember or the kind of information that we can consciously recall. I'm also talking about all of the experiences that have conditioned us, all of the habits that we've acquired through procedural learning, all the particular ways that we look at the world because of the perceptual learning that we have engaged in during the course of our lives. These are all ways in which our experiences have shaped us, have contributed through brain plasticity to our current neural being. So when you take the genetic temperament with which we're born, you add all of the plasticity in the brain which has shaped our neural development during the course of time. Throw in a little bit of epigenetic factors in which the various genes that we are born with, you know, the different alleles, the different forms of the genes that we've gotten through our genetic heritage. Well, they can be expressed differently because of the experiences we've had. All of those factors together are perhaps the sum total of who we are at any given moment in our lives. That's our identity. That's who we are. Okay. Again, I'm taking a non-dualist position. I don't believe that there is any 
immaterial soul or spirit above and beyond our biological nature. And maybe some people won't accept that. So how do you see the connection between the mind and the brain? So the mind is the sort of conceptual expression of the state of the brain at any given point. So the mind is like the psychological expression of the different processes of the brain. Right. It's sort of a level of explanation. You know, in, in biology, it's good to have different levels of explanation going from the molecular to the behavioral. And when we're using concepts like the mind, then that's one level of description of perhaps how we can conceptualize of different neural representations in the brain when it comes to the way they relate to realities out there in the world. Okay. So our, our concept of an apple is represented in different connections between neurons in our brain that have been influenced by our perceptual experience to look at apples, eat apples, smell apples, hear the crunch of apples. That, that all comes together in the concept of an apple. And, and we can talk about the idea of an apple in our mind. And when you talk about the world being driven by materialistic determinism, uh, could you explain that a bit further? So the material world of biology, that relates both to our genetics and the way that we will develop as an organism during the course of time. And that's very deterministic. There is a certain degree of perhaps apparent randomness in, in our development. But if you could look at the very you know, specific molecular level, you see that any step that happens in genetic development during the course of uh, embryonic development and then, of course, developmental processes that happen after we're born, as we're growing up, these are determined by the particular material circumstances that happen to be present at any stage during the course of development. So the chemical milieu in the womb is going to affect the way that particular cells grow and develop. And there's nothing else that could possibly affect that except for those chemical factors that happen to be present. So there is, for every small part, there is a cause and effect, but then the combination of all of those small parts is what creates the individuality. Right. And, and this is where the neural holism comes into play, because for you and for me, at the moment that concerns us, the present moment, all of the sum total of material developments that have affected our being, again, beginning with the genetic heritage that goes back generations before we were born and perhaps to the very beginning of life. But all of those processes in this sort of miraculous way have come together in order to not only create us, but to bring us to be who we are today. And who we are today, all of the various factors that determine our temperament, that will have you know, sort of come together to make us individuals who are calm or nervous, afraid or fearless, concerned with others or selfish, reward-seeking or unconcerned with reinforcement. People can all be different along these parameters, and who we are is a function of what our genetic development and our experience have led us to be. And when we come to make a decision about anything that we can do at any point in life, our sort of best case scenario is that we make that decision based on the complete suite of mental processes that are available to us, the way that they've grown and developed. And if that's what happens, then we can on a certain level say that our decision is a result of our free will. Free will, not that we could have done otherwise than we did, but that in doing as we do, we have expressed everything that we are. Mm, okay. But then there are 
within the subconscious parts of the brain, there are still things that run a bit automatically without us thinking so much about it. And so there, there is a name for this. There are residual modality-driven functions of the brain. Could, could you explain a bit what that is? The brain being so complex, there are some processes and systems that are more interactive and in which seem to involve the contribution of a great many subsystems of the brain. And there seem to be other processes that are relatively encapsulated and go through their course of activity with a little bit less contribution of the other areas of the brain. So again, when we're talking about the brain, we can also speak about the nervous system in general. So simple reflexes, for example, that occur in a reflex arc that on the spinal level are things that can happen relatively in an encapsulated fashion without the input from other areas of the nervous system. Whereas perhaps something like a complex social interaction with another individual will be something that occurs with the participation of a great many areas of the brain interacting at the same time, where perhaps all the senses will providing perceptual information and memories, both explicit and implicit, will be impacting on the action that will take an interaction with the other person. Various emotional control systems, such as those in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and the orbitofrontal cortex, will perhaps be playing a stronger role during the context of social interactions. Some of those areas might not be as active when we're engaging in a simple manual task like opening a, a lock with a key. So there'll be different levels of recruitment and interactivity between the various areas of the brain, depending on what's engaging us at any given point. So is the stress response a form of modality like this that kind of runs by itself? When we're talking about our emotional lives, there seem to be sort of two levels of systems that are involved. There is the immediate reactivity that can express itself in things like stress responses. When we're talking about hormones like cortisol that mobilize metabolic resources that we use to confront external threats, the initial reactivity seems to be relatively automatic and perhaps modulated by parts of the brain like the hypothalamus, which are very ancient and sort of shared by a great many living things and that are not perhaps accessible to direct conscious control. However, in addition to that basic primary reactivity, we are also capable of emotionally modulating our responses using more developed brain systems. And the differences between people in their sort of emotional nature is probably more on the level of the modulation of primary responses and the control of reactivity rather than in, in only in basic reactivity itself. Reactivity is something which is very difficult to change as we go along. I think that that might be more genetically determined, whereas we can learn to be more controlling of our responses. And that's something that we can grow and develop over the course of our life. So is behavioral automaticity part of this? Or is it separate from the more reactive responses? So I think that's exactly it, that you do have a reactive response. The question is, when do your sort of more complex control systems that have developed during the course of our life experience step in to keep the fundamental reactivity under control? I might not have, for example, uh, tremendous control over my initial very strong emotional reaction when I'm driving and another driver cuts in in front of me and creates an immediate sense of road rage that I think is perhaps universal across cultures. But I might have practiced developing a secondary, perhaps more effective 
response to that initial road rage that I feel, whereas instead of stepping on the gas and crashing into the, the back of the car of the driver who so enrages me, say to myself, it's okay, take it easy, you'll get to work, nothing bad will happen, just keep it under control. So the behavioral nomaticity is sort of these things that trigger us, triggered emotional responses that we can take somewhat control over and influence through intentional training, so to speak. Right. We, we can improve. We can learn that there are certain situations in which our primary reactivity is going to be very strong. But into those situations, then it's going to be very difficult for us to act effectively. So what we can do is we can use the learning that we've acquired during our lives, if we're lucky enough to have undergone such learning, to engineer our environments in such ways that we avoid falling into the traps that will have us react in such a non-effective way, in a way that later we'll regret and feel, oh, I wish I hadn't have done that. Mm. When we say that we don't really have free will in the extent that who we are is determined by our prior experiences. Hopefully, as a society, prior experiences of individuals can include educational experiences that teach us and train us, first of all, to understand this very fact that we have primary reactivity and that emotional regulation is challenging. And let's learn skills. Let's learn mindfulness. Let's, you know, in the broadest sense of taking a aware and broadly shaped view of what happens to us in life and prepare ourselves to react more effectively to situations which are going to be challenging. And, and there are other things that we can learn. For example, one thing that we can learn is how to be creative. So I think that people in general might have a naive concept that people are either creative or they're not creative and there isn't very much you can do about that. But, but I don't think that's true. I think that perhaps the most effective definition of creativity, which has been offered, is that creativity involves the application of a conceptual framework that we've learned in one walk of life to a different challenge that we're now facing and understanding that a way of solving a problem that we've used in a completely different context is actually something that can help us in the situation that we're involved in now. And that it's good to sort of take the uh, opportunity to think about past experiences that we've had that might in any possible way be relevant to the problem we're, we're now facing and to use that to look for a solution. And, and this is the reason that deliberation is a very important part of decision-making, right? If we don't have free will, if we're going to do what we're engineered by, by our life to do, well, what's the sense in, in deliberating? What's the sense in thinking about possible choices? Well, isn't it sort of faded what we're going to do? No, it's not faded what we're going to do. The more we deliberate, the more we allow creative ideas to rise to the surface of our consciousness, and maybe even not only rise to the surface of consciousness, but just for the neural representations of those memories to be activated, then they're more likely to influence the decision that we will make. So you described in the article that there is no limit between content and process in the brain. And I find this so fascinating. The brain is the only organ in the body that can actually study itself. The liver is not doing a good job at that. And thinking that there is no delineation between the process and the content is a little bit like thinking of a library that would read its own books instead of having people coming in and reading them. And this goes a little bit in line with, with what you're saying, that the content is already there. And when we engage the process of deliberation, the deeper we go and the more content we bring up, the more information we have for the, the deliberation of the choice at hand. I think that maybe uh, if I were writing that article, which is almost 20 years old, if I were writing it today, maybe I wouldn't be as categorical in saying that there's 
no separation between process and content in the brain. What I still subscribe to is the idea that as terms of the representation of information, the same parts of the brain that enables us to perceive the world are the parts of the brain in which our knowledge about those perceptions are stored. So that I would still say. But it's also true that the mechanisms which shape and guide our behavior, which are primarily frontal lobe-based mechanisms, they are maybe independent of some of the representations of information which seem to be dependent more on the posterior areas of the brain. But our command and control mechanisms can also grow and change over the course of our lives through brain plasticity as a result of the experiences that we've had. So if we're talking about the prefrontal lobe mechanisms which are involved in the control of action, whether it's cognitive or emotional, those areas of the brain can also exhibit plasticity. They can also grow and develop, and they do. With every experience we have, they change a little bit, hopefully getting more effective at leading us to achieve our goals, whatever those goals might be at whatever stage at life we're at. Mm. So being somehow controlled by an external force is a very common paranoia, but you would like to argue that you can be influenced or manipulated, but never fully controlled externally. How is that? We're always influenced by considerations that are outside of us. Again, to the extent that our brains are, are fully functional. So if we're not under the influence of drugs that have been administered to us or that we have administered to ourselves that maybe affect the function of our command and control systems or the, the relationship between those systems and other brain systems, if we're fully functional in any given point, if we have not undergone brain damage, if we're not suffering from psychiatric illnesses, let's say obsessive compulsive disorder, if we are as neurologically and psychiatrically intact as we can be, then whatever happens outside of us is a datum. It's a piece of information that influences what decision we might make, but it doesn't force us to act in a certain way. It's only part of the puzzle. The complete puzzle is within our own brains. So no matter what information comes from outside, we still choose what to do with that information and how to interpret it in a way. That's one of the benefits of the complexity of the brain. Yeah. And this idea that some people adhere to, that you can somehow have something implanted and become controlled... I think comes from a, a lack of understanding of how complex the brain is and how complex that device would have to be. But it's quite common, and especially today. Do you have any thoughts around that? So this is a great theme for movies and novels. Again, I think that our complexity is what protects us from very simple forms of, of outside influence. Of, of course we can be influenced, but can we actually be completely controlled not with any degree of certainty, right? It's partially a, a result of the fact that the only complete model of everything that's happening within the 85 billion neurons in our brain, not to mention the 85 billion glia that interact with our neurons, you know, that enormous complexity and the tens of thousands of synaptic connections between each one of those neurons, modeling each one of our brains would require a system as complex as our brains. And I don't think that that kind of modeling is something that any external person could control in any meaningful fashion. So it is possible that one day, you know, I've, I've learned to say that nothing is impossible, right? Unlikely will take a long time, but it's dangerous to say that anything is impossible. So perhaps through artificial intelligence, it may be possible one day to completely model every single neural connection in the brain. Maybe with quantum computing and the power that that will enable artificial intelligence to have, maybe that will happen one day. But that will be amazing. And then if you take into account the differences between us, the individuality between us, it would have also to be then some form of device that would 
spend the first quite decent amount of time learning what is going on in this particular brain in order to be able to influence it. Right. It will have to model not only the genetic profile of every individual, but the epigenetic profile of every particular perhaps every cell in every organ in the entire body, not only in the brain, right? So it, we're talking about a significant degree of complexity. Yes. So your standpoint on free will is that we have it or we don't have it or something in between? The point that I was trying to make was mostly directed at philosophers. Classical philosophical approaches to free will that say that in order for a person to have free will, they must have the ability to have done otherwise than what they did. That's sort of the classical definition of free will. And what I'm saying is, no, we do not have the ability to do otherwise than what we would have done. Because since what we do is, you know, under the best circumstances, an ex full expression of all of who we are, we don't want to have done otherwise than what we did. We want to have done exactly what we did because that's who we are. So I'm saying that cannot be a definition of free will. So I reject that philosophical approach. And I'm saying that really the kind of free will that we should be desiring is neural holism. We should always want that everything we decide to do is a completely ramified expression of every aspect of our neural and biological being. And then we are as free as is possible in this universe. So it goes to say that the actions that we've taken in the past was a complete expression of our whole self. But what we can affect is our free will in the future by looking into our own mind and looking into our own personality and working intentionally on maybe shifting these underlying processes that are part of this expression of self. We can work strategically. We can take advantage of the full complement of human knowledge and the understanding that we have won with great effort about the brain and about the body and take those insights to build and design social institutions and personal approaches to life that will enable us to function more effectively. So going back to the analogy of road rage, when you, let's say that I'm in a car today and I react with road rage, then that is the only reaction that was available to me in that moment. But I can sit down and I can think about it and I can decide that this is not a reaction that I would like to continue to have in the future and intentionally move to change that. And that is the core concept of my free will, that I can look at my brain, I can look at my reactions and I can choose to intentionally move those in a different direction in the future. We can improve. We can learn from our experiences. We can attain insights. Not everybody takes the effort to do that, but we all could. Yeah. A lot of the development of the brain through childhood, the brain is incredibly plastic. It's incredibly tuned into developing through the experiences it has. At the same time, we are in a point in life where we don't control our external environment. When you're a child, you are controlled by adults around you. And still that creates so much of our personality when we grow up. And I, I think it's, a, it's interesting how much of the mind and the personality and the psychology that I have today that was shaped through a part of my life where I could not control what was shaping it. And I think this is what leads to a lot of us thinking that the way I am is fixed, the way I am is unchangeable, the experiences that I had made me this way. And I think it's so important to understand that you can never change the experiences as they were, but you can still change how you think about them today. You can change your current perception of them. You can still change neural circuits that was created by these experiences by intentionally changing the experience that you have now and forward 
to creating new neural circuits, that we have an ability, a capacity to, to mold our brain and to remove things that aren't serving us and try to add things that might serve ourselves and others in a better way. We certainly can do that. When you speak about childhood experiences, how powerfully our adult nature is shaped by our childhood experiences. Our brains are indeed very plastic when we're younger, and therefore there is a very strong contribution of childhood experiences, but our brains continue to be plastic throughout our lives. So change is always possible. There's something else which is related to that, which I think comes culturally from the fact that within especially Western society, but not only Western society, the idea of a soul that is something shared not only by people with a particular religious belief, but I think by many people, that we have a spiritual nature which is independent of our biology. There is something that it means to be me which is independent of the things that happened to me in my life when I was a child or when I was an adult. And biology is basically saying no. And maybe this relates to what you said before about that there's no difference between process and content. Yeah, There is no entity of me which is independent of my experiences. Our experiences are just as much an integral part of who we are as anything else. And that's sort of the culturally formed intuition, which is difficult for people to overcome. The idea of meanness, which is separate from what I've experienced in my life. And I think this might be related to the concept that the biological part of us will disappear. We will die. We will no longer exist. And if we do create something spiritual that is above that, then there is an opportunity for us to always exist. And it removes a bit of this fear. Indeed. The denial of death is an extremely potent psychological force. It's one of the driving processes of human nature. The notion that one day we will cease to exist is very scary. And therefore, it's not surprising that any spiritual teachings that talk about a spirit which can exist independently of our biological being is very attractive. And also, I think it can, because we often have the experience of being connected to other people. And that feels like something outside of our biological body as well. And it feeds into this view of having a self outside of the biological body because we can sense things, we can sense emotions, we can sense other people and almost have a feeling of some form of energy field. And I think this is another part that gives a bit credence to the idea. It's a great concept, the notion that we exist not only within ourselves, but also in the representation of us in the minds of other people. And that's why we want people to remember us, not only when we're gone, but also when we're alive. We want to think that other people are thinking about us and that we exist in their consciousness. It's a very comforting thought. And at the same time, it's interesting how much time we spend creating a figurative image of ourselves as we believe it occurs in other people's minds. We think that someone has an opinion of us and we believe that their opinion is like this. We take our own experience and we project it onto others because it's the only thing we know. And then we use that in a sort of feedback loop to reinforce our own beliefs. It's kind of a way that we're using others to reinforce our own psychology in a way. We are indeed social animals and that's a very important aspect of our being. So. Thinking in these lines of, of uh, the philosophy of free will, combined with the neuroscience that you've made, has this changed your view on other people and other people's behavior? First of all, I think that I'm much more forgiving of other people than I would be if I had a different concept of free will and responsibility. I have a whole different notion of responsibility. Uh, this has also influenced how I think of justice in society and the criminal justice system and the legal system. And I've written about that, you know, in other, in other contexts and what it means for people to be responsible for their actions. I've become a little bit more kind to myself as a result of these insights. 
It's still not easy not to be demanding of oneself, but if there's anything that can help you have a little bit more kindness to yourself, it's understanding this notion of how we got to be who we are through the processes that we've described. And I think that's very important because self-compassion is something that we require. And of course, compassion for others is something which is such a key part of being human. And hopefully these kind of insights into human nature enable us to have that kind of compassion for ourselves and for others. How do you think about responsibility now? I don't think that people can be held responsible for what they do, except in the sense that we need to engineer the institutions of society in such a way that people are able to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number. When I think about what do I expect, what I expect other people to do, I ex don't expect them to be altruistic. I expect them to be selfish, not in a mean sense or in an evil sense. I just expect them to be real biological creatures who are looking out for their own interests. If they cooperate with others, it's because that's in their interest. If they decide to be in conflict with others, it's because that's in their interest. Of course, I get angry when other people do bad things to me, but that's my immediate reactivity. In, in the long run, I sort of view these things differently today. But do you think it can become an excuse for people to not change? I don't know if it's an excuse for people not to change. I think that we're sort of being hypocritical if we believe that people in their fundamental nature are good and kind and merciful and charitable. And I, I don't think we are. I think that in our fundamental nature, we are selfish and that's okay. And if we're not selfish, it's because we want to protect and be kind to the people that we love. And that's also okay. And we're going to be kinder to the people that we love more than to people that we, you know, are not our loved ones. Can we relate to every human being in the universe on the same degree of care and concern? No, <laughs> no. And we shouldn't expect ourselves to. Does that mean that we should go around, you know, robbing, raping, killing, uh, taking advantage, enslaving others? Of course not. <laughs> of, of course not. But the fact that we've achieved systems of social order that are based on things like the recognition of private property, degree to which we expect others to safeguard the health and well-being of other individuals. These are social systems. They need to be built. They need to be strengthened. They need to be maintained. And they need to be taken care of precisely because human nature is otherwise. So realizing these things enable us to engineer social systems that will protect us better. I think that in order to achieve the best for humans, we need to assume the worst about human nature and then build our institutions of society accordingly. I think one of the most important things that we can do is to ensure a safe and happy childhood because that is such an important part of developing the brain. Children learn from experience and they learn from modeling grown-ups' behaviors and then we bring that into adult life. And the more children we can give a bit of a head start, that we don't create things that they need to dismantle and rebuild as adults, the more they can spend their energy and creativity towards more positive pursuits. Childhood is a magical time. I, you know, I tried as a father to do the best that I could to create a warm, supportive, developmentally positive environment for my children. They don't think that I did such a perfect job, but hey, that comes with the territory. I tried. And of course, those of us who do decide to be parents, that's our responsibility. I really enjoy talking about this. I find it really interesting. And I've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about how our experiences are truly different, that we actually live in a different reality from other people. So let's say that one example is when, when I got pregnant, both me and my husband all of a sudden saw pregnant people everywhere. And my husband even told me, why is everyone else having a kid at the same time as us? And that is only because our brain all of a sudden found this to be relevant information. We started thinking about babies and 
pregnancy and strollers and all of those things. And our brain started to focus on it and gather information on it, basically. So in our current reality, then, there was a lot of pregnant people around us. But that is not the reality of someone who is not having the same focus at that point point in time. And I think this is what creates a lot of the differences between us when we start fighting about a difference in point of view, that especially when it comes to political views and things like this, everyone is living in their own reality where their own ideas are being reinforced by the filter that we're using to filter in certain information and filter out certain information. And that is in a way, gives me a form of empathy towards people that have a differencing view, because it means that the experience that they are living right now is this. This is what they are experiencing in their world. It's not the absolute truth, but neither is my experience. But it means that just trying to tell them that they are wrong is not going to help, because it's, it's countering what they are experiencing. And that instead... The idea would be to be curious about, well, what is it that you're filtering in and filtering out? And, and how can we maybe both then adapt to trying to come a little bit closer to the actual truth, both of us, in a way? A kind of philosophical thing that has been going through my mind a lot lately. What you're saying about noticing other pregnant women is uh, related to a different field of, of research that I'm engaged in, which is the attentional systems of the brain and how salience of particular information affects our perceptual focus. And of course, it is indeed very, very difficult to get people to understand that there are many different ways of looking at the world. It's an enormous challenge. There's not something that maybe we should expect. I think that, again, when we understand how powerfully our brains are shaped by our genetics, our epigenetics, and all of our prior experiences in life, it perhaps will be less surprising to us that somebody else will not see the world the same way we do, because our brains have been shaped to be different, both by our long-term prior experience and by our immediate prior experience. Maybe that's one way that we can begin a dialogue with the acknowledgement of the fact that we come to a discussion of any contentious issue with very different viewpoints because our brains are different. And then we can also intentionally start to look at information that might lie outside of the scope that we usually have. So we can actually look to inform ourselves on, what, okay, what is this other side learning about? What is the knowledge that they are taking in? And then process that to get a, a fuller view of what's going on. Right. That's very challenging, very difficult. I can just mention, you know, one example that comes to mind, things that I've learned from my colleagues who are social psychologists. When you try to bring together members of two ethnic or political groups that have been in conflict, um, especially where one group has been the dominant and the other group has been perhaps oppressed. And these two groups are trying to achieve some degree of reconciliation. So the group that had previously been in power wants to sort of ignore the past and say, let's just move on and try to build a better future. Whereas the people who had been on the more deprived side of the interaction cannot move and do not want to ignore the past. They want to talk about the power relationships. They need to go through the processes through which they have suffered before they can go ahead to the future. So the group that, you know, people are coming from the power group don't understand that. And, and they need to be told that this is a dynamic, which is a psychological reality, so that truly effective dialogue can occur. Why do you think this is? That the oppressed side has this need to go through it and the oppressor side would rather like to ignore it? Perhaps because we discount advantage very quickly and we don't discount deprivation very quickly. Does this have to do with the self? The feeling that that I put in effort, that my effort is valuable and if I am being told to be advantaged that lessens 
my effort in a way. Perhaps. You know, the, the notion of being privileged and advantaged is a major part of social dialogue today. It's a dominant factor. I'm not sure that it's always, you know, the most effective way of improving the situation of people who are not where they should be, but it's, it certainly needs to be more part of the dialogue than it was in the past. And there are lots of different kinds of privilege. There are lots of different kinds of privilege. And even within materially privileged societies, psychological health varies wildly across people with material privilege and people with less material privilege, where relative deprivation within a society seems to be a more important factor for psychological well-being than absolute material status. These are complex factors that... that affect how people perceive themselves to be. And so to sort of sum up and go back to, to the notion of free will, what would be your advice to the listeners in regards to their own free will in order to reflect on it or expand it or anything like that? I believe in the importance of practice in the sense of being aware of factors that influence our behavior and engaging in deliberate practice to change our patterns of responses. So I think one thing that we can do is to become more psychologically literate and to enjoy the fruits of psychological and neurological research in understanding what makes us tick, what influences our cognition and our emotion, and to be aware of those factors, and then to think about how the various processes of automaticity that cause us to have emotional reactivity that might not be good for us, well, to be aware of them, to think about how we can behave differently under certain situations, to learn to count to 10 before we scream, and to practice doing that over and over again until we are able to develop new habits, new patterns of behavior that will enable us to respond in a more effective fashion, given particular circumstances that we're in. So basically to engineer ourselves, to create a better version of us than we might have had previously by taking advantage of the insights of science. And continue through life. It never ends. Reinventing oneself all, all the time. Thank you so much for, for joining me here today. This was very interesting and I hope people got a lot of reflections from it and some interesting insights to continue on. And I would love to talk to you at some other point also about memory and learning and the research that you're currently doing, because that is very interesting as well. It would be my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So this episode was a bit different and I loved having this discussion around free will. Professor Levy rejects the classical philosophical approach to free will that states that in order for a person to have free will, they must have the ability to have done otherwise than what they did. He's proposing that really the kind of free will that we should be desiring is neural holism, where everything we decide to do is a completely ramified expression of every aspect of our neural and biological being. So what does that mean? The concept of neural holism is that the person you are at any given moment is a combination of the genetic temperament you were born with and its interactions with all the previous experiences of your life up to that moment. So what we do know from neuroscience is that we acquire new habits through procedural learning, we're conditioned by our experiences, and through all this our brain is plastic and changing, adapting with new input into the person we are at any given moment. So in essence, neural holism means that we don't have free will, but that that's okay. Accepting this premise means that in a certain situation, we could not have done otherwise than what we did. But in doing as we do, we are fully expressing everything that we are. So are we free? Well, the part of our experience where we do have freedom is the ability to choose to look at our brain and our reactions, learn from current science in psychology and neuroscience, and use all this information to intentionally move in a different direction for our future selves. And then to practice doing that over and over again until we're able to develop new habits and new patterns of behavior that will enable us to respond in a more effective fashion. 
given the particular circumstances that we're in. So basically to engineer ourselves to create a better version of us than we might have had previously. This view of free will holds the potential to affect one's perception of responsibility and lead to more forgiveness and kindness towards both others and oneself. Whatever you or anyone else have done, the foundation of that choice was based on the total sum of everything you or they were in that moment. So you simply couldn't have done otherwise. Maybe our responsibility instead lies in constantly changing and improving so we don't repeat the same mistakes. I hope you found this discussion interesting and maybe it can inspire more thinking about this subject and how we view ourselves and others. And as always, if you like the material, please subscribe to the show.